Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time of study in God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've already enjoyed in worshiping together. Lord, as we study from your Word today, Lord, I pray that it would reprove us, it would correct us, and it would lead us to righteousness. Lord, we know that we are called to face suffering with hope in this world, and we are given so many great reasons for doing so. And Lord, I pray that as we understand this last reason for enduring and hope, uh, even in the midst of suffering, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us hope for the future as we look forward to that day of resurrection, and that we would live with confidence even as we face trials of many kinds. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Romans chapter 8 again, and we're coming to the end of uh, a three-part mini-series, I guess you could say, on how to endure suffering in this world. And we have been working through the book of Romans, and Paul has gotten to the point where he recognizes that, uh, you know, we, as he said in chapter 7, we are... Uh, renewed by the Holy Spirit, that we're given the Spirit of God to desire the things of God, but yet we still are, in a sense, joined to this fallen world through our bodies, that our bodies are still corrupt and they haven't been redeemed through the resurrection yet. And therefore, we still struggle on a daily basis with temptation and sin. We struggle with persecution. We struggle with pain. We struggle with death. And that is the way of this life. And it's not just the way of this life, as I said last week. It's not just the way of this life for Christians. Christians aren't the only ones who suffer, but we are the only ones who can suffer with hope. And so we started at the, in the middle of chapter 8, starting about verse 18. We started to work through these three reasons that we can hope even as we face suffering in this world. And so we saw, to start with, that we can uh, face suffering with a hopeful grief. And in that, we recognize that this world is not the way that it should be. Even the creation itself, as Paul says, is groaning with pains of childbirth, that it is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, is waiting for that day of judgment and resurrection when God will redeem the whole universe through the return of Christ. And then last week, we saw that we can have hope because we know that our salvation is secure. And that salvation has been secure all the way from the beginning of time until now, and it will be secure all the way into the future till God brings about what, what Paul calls our glorification, which is the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of our bodies to be renewed and remade into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today we come to the last uh, reason to hope, and I, we'll look at that as we go through Romans chapter uh, 8, starting in verse 31. So let's read together Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter in verse 39. God's Word says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus, who, uh, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, in the year 168 A.D., there was a a terrible persecution that broke out against the Christians in Asia Minor, particularly in the region that is now Turkey. So if you imagine that region on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the city of Smyrna, there was an 86-year-old bishop named Polycarp, who was especially coveted by the Roman authorities. They wanted him and they pursued him because he was the last living disciple of the apostles. He was actually a disciple of the apostle John. And his followers had hidden him away for weeks and they moved him from house to house and trying to protect him uh, from persecution. But the Roman authorities finally caught up with him. And the Roman governor, in order to make an example out of him, he called the whole city of Smyrna to the local arena. And he took, they took elderly Polycarp and they tied his hands to a stake. And the governor stood over him and asked the bishop to renounce his faith in Christ. And Polycarp answered by saying this, 86 years I have served my Lord Jesus Christ and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So the governor threatened him first with being mauled by beasts. And Polycarp would not renounce his faith. So the governor said, you know, I have the power to burn you alive. I can build a fire right now and burn you to death. To which Polycarp gave this answer. He said, you threaten me with fire which will burn for an hour and then will go out. But you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God reserved for the everlasting torment of the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on the beast or the fire or whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny Christ, my Lord and Savior. At this, the crowd was so incensed that they cried for him to be burned alive. So they built a fire, a power around him, and they lit the flames, but Polycarp would not burn. And so in frustration, the governor ordered him to be speared to death, and they struck him with a spear, and they said that his blood flowed out, and it actually put out the fire. So Polycarp is a very famous example 
of millions of martyrs who have chosen death over the renunciation of their faith in Christ. And when we read about stories like this, we marvel at their faith and how they could endure persecution for the sake of faithfulness to Christ. And we might wonder how we would do in the face of such persecution. And the answer to that question of how to endure persecution, or the last answer, if you will, to that question of how we can endure persecution is found in our passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. In this passage, we find our last answer to the question of how the Christian can suffer with hope in this present age. We can hope in suffering because, first of all, We have no fear of the judgment. And second, we can rely on the faithful love of God. So first, from verses 31 through 34, we find that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no fear of judgment. So Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now understand at this moment in the life of the church, especially in the life of the church at Rome, they are facing persecution. This is written somewhere around 60 AD, and the uh, Emperor Nero is already starting to turn on Christians. The Christians in Rome are already starting to feel heat. And so this question, if God is for us, who can be against us on his face seems rather ridiculous because there are plenty of people who are against the Christians in Rome. And there are beginning to be plenty of people who are against the Christians in the United States of America. My, uh, my mother-in-law pointed out that during, uh, after the court decision on Roe v. Wade that overturned Roe v. Wade, she saw a, a, a woman at a rally holding a sign that said, Give me Roe v. Wade, not Jesus. You see, people see very starkly the difference between their way of life and the Christian way of life. And it is beginning to rub unbelievers raw. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, we will be called to stand firm in our faith in this present age. And the way that we stand firm in our faith is to know that we have no fear of judgment. Because... Yes, there are people who are against us. But the point that Paul makes is that the primary concern that we should have in our life is not the judgment of men. It is the judgment of God. It is lost on many people in our society just how terrible the judgment of God will be. But the Bible describes the judgment of God in a number of ways, and I want to delineate some of them. First of all, it describes the judgment of God that is to come on the whole world as eternal fire. Now, I think it gives that image of eternal fire because fire is the worst thing that can happen to you. Just consider the story I told of Polycarp. If beasts weren't bad enough, the governor knew that fire would be a convincing agent in getting Polycarp to turn, even though it ended up not working. Fire is a terrifying thing, and the judgment of God is compared to eternal fire. 
Second, the judgment of God is compared to outer darkness. And the idea there is being cast away, being cast away from all that is good. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but I've always been scared of the dark. I don't like to be in the dark. I'm not, I, I prefer to have a little light on when I'm at home. And that darkness, if you sit in it long enough, it is a point of fear. It is a point of uh, despair. It is a point of loneliness. There are so many reasons that we despise the dark. Thirdly, it is described as gnashing or gritting of teeth. In other words, the pain, the despair is so great that it, it causes you to grind your teeth, to grit your teeth in pain and anguish. And lastly, it is described as an abiding and ever abiding sense of despair. So we've already seen from our study in the book of Romans that we are all sinners. As Romans chapter 6 verse, 30, uh, verse 23 says, For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Paul said already in, in chapter 7, even though we have faith in Christ and, and God has given us His Spirit, we still struggle to be obedient because of our attachment to this fallen world. So we know that if it were up to us to prove our worthiness on that last day, on that great and final judgment that is to come, then we have no hope of escaping that darkness, that fire, and that despair of hell. But God has acted graciously towards us, as Paul says in chapter 5, verse 8, when we were still sinners. So in verse, 30, uh, verse 33, Paul says that there is no one who can bring a charge against us. God is the one who justifies. God has declared you to be righteous. God has provided the sacrifice for your sins. And if God has declared you to be righteous, if God has forgiven you of your sins, there is no one else to bring an accusation. Satan may stand and raise his hand in the court of uh, the eternal king, and he may say, I have a word to bring against brother or sister, and uh, he might stand to bring an accusation, but Jesus will hold out his nail-scarred hands and say, this one has been bought with a price. Amen. We can stand before God, not because of our own good, but because of what Jesus has done. And therefore, there is no one else to condemn us because the very Son of God has died for our sins. And not only that, Paul goes on to say He has risen again. So He's defeated death and hell for us by descending into the grave and rising again from the dead so that we might rise too. And then lastly, Paul says that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father and He intercedes for us. And that's a legal term that means that He appeals to God for us on His own behalf. So there is no one left to condemn us. There, Satan cannot condemn us because we have been forgiven in Christ. And even this world can't condemn us. So we might go before the court of men. 
or the court of public opinion or the court of Facebook or Twitter. And we might have to be accused for the sake of our belief in Christ. But they can do their worst. They may accuse us of immorality because we don't meet with their new perversions of pronouns and definitions of what it means to live in a righteous and uh, biblical way. They may accuse us of uh, hatred because we testify against sin and judgment. They may even condemn us at some point, and in some places in the world they do this on a daily basis, they may even condemn us to die. But they cannot condemn us of the only thing that really matters, and that is the eternal judgment that is to come on this whole world. And they cannot condemn us of that judgment because Jesus has already defeated hell for us. So my second point is that we can endure suffering with hope because we can rely on the faithful love of God as we suffer. So in verses 35 through 39, Paul goes on to ask, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, this is a reasonable question to ask, because if no one can condemn us because Jesus has done all the work for us and has died for our sins and been raised again from the dead and he intercedes for us, then there actually is one person who can still condemn us. Jesus himself. So is there anything that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Is there anything that could make Jesus say, you know what, I was willing to die for you until you did that, and now I can't, I can't bear that, and I changed my mind. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? So Paul asked, a list of things that might we might think would separate us. He asked, can tribulation... Now, tribulation, the word literally means pressure. It's, the, it's a general term or a placeholder for any trial that we might face. And then he gets more specific and he says, okay, can distress separate us from the love of Christ? So distress is any natural calamity. So your house burns down or a hurricane or tornado or fire or flood, whatever it might be. Next, can famine, can our destitution, our nakedness, nakedness is is a placeholder, if you will, for uh, destitution of any kind. So you're so poor that you can't even buy clothes. Can persecution, can the judgment of other men separate us from the love of Christ? Can danger, which would be political unrest or rioting or, or just crime in general. Can the sword, which is a placeholder for uh, government action or, or war. Now I think Paul gives this list of calamities because in any of these situations, whether it be just a general tribulation or a hurricane or a flood or a fire or whatever, we can be tempted to think that God is set against us. Lord knows, I, I know that in heavy shelling in parts of Ukraine where people are huddled up under a car, uh, a parking garage in a mall and the, all they hear night and day are bombs going off over their head. Lord knows I have to imagine they feel like God has turned His back on them. We can be tempted to think 
when we lose our, all of our belongings to a fire or to uh, some other calamity, that God doesn't love us. We might think that God hates us when we face a plague and a lockdown and an inflationary spiral and a recession all in the course of two years. But I want you to pay, I want you to pay close attention to Paul's emphatic answer in verse 37. He asked, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And the answer, no. In fact, the opposite is actually true. He goes on to say, not only can we not be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So how are we conquerors if we face a persecution like Polycarp? How is it that Polycarp is a conqueror? You know, we don't know the name of the governor who ordered the execution of Polycarp. We don't know the name of the soldier that drove a spear in his side. But there's one name from that evening that we do know. It's Polycarp. And Polycarp has stood for over 2,000 years now, or almost 2,000 years now, as a testimony of faithfulness to the Lord and faithful service to His God. And His words are immortalized to this day as a faithful witness to God. Polycarp conquered His enemies. Polycarp is in the very throne room of God at this very hour, worshiping the one true God of this universe. He is enjoying the blessings of heaven and he will see the day when God will make all things new. And so regardless of what we face in this life, we are more than conquerors because even if we lose this life, lose in this life, no, regardless of what we may lose in this life, we still have Jesus, and Jesus is enough. Amen. He gives us victory over sin. He gives us strength when we are weak. And He has overcome this world through His resurrection, and we will too. So Paul ends with this last thought in verses 38 and 39 by listing out all of the things that have no power to separate us from the love of Christ. So in the first list he gave, they were just kind of natural or political uh, things that might come our way. Now he speaks of powers. He speaks of things that are active, actively set against us or actually actively participating to do us wrong. So he lists out first whether we're facing the threat of death or even the fullness of this life. We cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Second, there's no authority, whether it be angels or men. There is no authority that can separate us from the love of Christ. And third, there is nothing in our past, our present, or our future that can separate us from the love of Christ. And lastly, he says there is neither height nor depth, and I love this, just in case he missed anything, he says, nor anything else in all of creation. There is nothing else in this world, not uh, in our own lives or in what other people may do to us that can separate us from the love of Christ 
that it, uh, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because we didn't do anything to earn it to start with. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ because God's love for us in Jesus Christ is given by His grace. We don't deserve it, so we can't lose it because of the circumstances of our lives. We can't lose it because of a wrong decision that we made or a wrong step that we took or a life-altering diagnosis or the persecution of men. We can't lose it for anything that would happen to us or anything that we would encounter in this life. And beyond that, God's love is perfect. So that means that there is nothing we can do to add to His love either. God doesn't love you more. Now hear me on this, and I'll say this emphatically. Hear me on this, Christian. God doesn't love you any more than He loved you from the start. And He doesn't love you any less because you caught Him by surprise with some sin. You can't catch Him by surprise because as we studied last week, He has foreknown you from before the foundation of the world. God's love for you is based on His grace, not on who you are or what you've done. And this gives us all the confidence we need to face the suffering that is in front of us with hope. So may we leave this place ready to face suffering, knowing that God's love for us endures beyond anything that this world can bring. So this morning, we're going to remember the suffering of Christ through the Lord's Supper that we have set before us. And as we remember the Lord's Supper today, we remember that Jesus gave his body and his blood to cover our sins, that he lived in full obedience in his body where we could not in ours. He did what the law required on, in every dot and every tittle. He lived in complete obedience and he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so we take this bread and this cup today as a reminder of what Jesus has done. And I invite you, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as your Lord and Savior, you believe that he has died for your sins and risen again, that you might see everlasting life, then you're welcome to participate in this Lord's Supper with us. Uh, So at this time, I invite the deacons to come forward and help in serving in the Lord's Supper.